Welcome back to Bob Talk with Talia Little. Before we begin this podcast today, I would just like to acknowledge the Bunurong mob that I, the land of the Bunurong mob, which I'm recording from today. And Rona, where are you recording from? I'm here on Wurundjeri country on the lands of the Kulin Nation. Beautiful, beautiful country up there. I'm always up on Wurundjeri country. I actually think I'm moving there soon. So, you know, that'll be exciting. Totally. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful place. I um, live right near this creek and I often walk on it in the mornings and it's amazing to kind of be in country here and feel connection, even though I'm not from here and I'm just a visitor here. It's a privilege to be able to spend time here. It's really um, beautiful, that feeling. Hey, like, obviously we're from um, Central, but being able to kind of feel like somewhere else is your home as well and just kind of feeling grateful for these months, like welcoming us here. It's so beautiful, especially on Bunurong Country. Have you been down here? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. used to live down that way. Not quite as far as you, I think, but um, mm. it's so stunning and having the coastline there. Oh, so beautiful. Amazing walks and Mm. opportunities to connect in with country. Yeah. And like, it's literally like two minute drive. I'm like near all these little like private beaches and stuff. And it's so beautiful. But I actually, there are like a lot of kids that run amok here. Um, So they spray painted the cliff walls. How gammon is that? That's so naughty. I know. And they like drew a big eight, like a letter eight. I don't know, probably like a tagging thing. But I was like, why am I going to do that? (laughs) What did those clips ever do to you? Like just tag something else that's not country, hey? Or just don't tag anything in general. But Yeah, tag the environment, not the natural. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's like, this is like pretty much my second time meeting you after I like ran up to you the other night and spotted you from a while mile away I actually called Sam today and I was like I met Rona out the other night and he's like oh yeah I was like yeah I like ran up to her and I spotted her I was like oh another black fella here this is so awesome (laughs) because it's so good at the events when like you see other mobs especially when they're like predominantly white events so it's just exciting these days I know particularly in that electronic space I think it's really amazing that Blackfellas are starting to take over and be more present in those spaces. And, you know, you look at the roots of electronic music and it came from black people, not in this country, but um, over in the U S and I think that inspiration and the way that electronic music was used as a culture of resistance, I think is something that we're just starting to explore in this country and there's a lot of really amazing Blackfella electronic artists that are coming up and that there's going to be Including more. Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of electronic music, you told me that you have an EP. Would you call it an EP? Yeah. Coming out in a couple of weeks. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So this music project has been happening for a while now. Um, I used to play music when I was a kid. I grew up in spaces with lots of guitars and music around me and played violin from a really young age. But coming down to Nam when I first came here for uni, I started going to clubs and started finding myself in these really interesting spaces. And I was so moved by, I guess, the scene that exists here around electronic music, but also the way that stories and emotions can be embedded in music. And storylines that underpin them 
And I started exploring synthesis and I bought synths. And for the next few years, I was just tinkering in my bedroom, uh, learning how to use them and really exploring what electronic music could look like from, you know, my perspective, but also bringing in the storylines and emotions that I wanted to center in that. So the tracks that are coming out in April were written in 2019 and were written at a time when I was really yearning to be back in the country that I'm connected to and to be back surrounded by community. I think I was feeling that, you know, while community here is so welcoming in Nam and this has been a great place to visit, I really wanted to be back in the desert and this EP really connects that moment of my life to the expression of music. Mm. Is it like a, lo- not lo-fi electronic, but is it kind of more of like a, um, is it higher or is it lower? Like what's the vibe? Um, Without giving too much away. <laughs> no, 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 no. The first, yeah, the first single comes out very soon. Um, it's like quite, I guess, organic and tied to place like there's soundscapes there's flutes there's kick drums there's lo-fi hats like there's it's just a mixture of things when I write I just write whatever comes out I'm not too prescriptive about what the sounds need to be but it's more about the emotion and the storylines that the music embodies it's so powerful hey how music kind of has that um, thing that can make you connect with so many people. And especially like when you're coming up to playing at festivals like Strawberry Fields and I'm sure many other events, they're the kind of places that people really do connect, I guess, with nature and stuff like that. So having um, your music out there will be a really powerful tool to, I guess, help people feel more connected and kind of feel that emotion through music. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, for us, mob like music was one of the first forms of cultural expression, you know, through song and through musical instrumentation, like thinking back to the days and continuing days of ceremony and the way that music's played a really central role in holding relationship with each other and holding relationship to country. I think there's something really powerful about what that means in the current context of our world and what that could mean in the future as well. Mm. I guess that's why it's super important to have um, inclusivity and diversity within the music space because even just mixing and DJing and even if they're not your own tracks, it's kind of a way of you. You have the ability to be able to educate people through different tracks, if you know what I mean. Like if you're playing um, a Yothi Yindi track and you're mixing that into your set, imagine how people are going to feel on the dance floor and maybe be like, oh, like I'll Shazam this or what's this track or, you know, kind of being able to share that knowledge in different ways is really cool as well. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, you know, a really amazing way to express our connections and our knowledge and our language and being able to draw from the incredible musicians that have come from community over the last couple of generations is something that's really special. That's what I really love about DJing. It's, you know, being able to select and bring in all of these influences that have shaped who I am as a person and my connection to yeah, different forms of musical expression and have that come to the fore in a dance floor when it's heaving is such a euphoric and amazing experience to have. Not that I've had that many dance floors yet. Like I'm still so early stage <laughs> in the journey, um, but I've had a couple of experiences of like 
yeah, mixing in some language to like a heavy dance track and the response from the crowd is pretty incredible. Oh, it's so sick. Even though, oh, do you, like, this is just another track, but do you remember when um, Carl Cox remixed Yossi Yindi's song, um, Treaty? Have you heard that track? Yeah, I have. I have. It's, it's so, so sick. Like, when I first heard it, this was probably, like, three or four years ago, and this is when I was, like, probably, like, 17, 18 and starting to get into, like, the electronic music scene and stuff like that. And to hear someone positively project our music but mix it with electronic music was so fucking cool like I was just like oh my god like as if people are doing this because I thought the electronic space was so white because that's all I'd seen like I didn't even know that you know like shame job but I you know I used to go to good life when I was like 14 or 15 and see like Will Sparks and you know like all the Melbourne clubs around would be like Will Sparks and Timmy Trump, all these like just white, just, I look back now, I'm like, oh, sis, just shame job. But, you know, it's really cool to be able to see um, our language kind of being put into these spaces as well because it's just been oppressed for so long. Yeah, and reclaiming, you know, like music's been appropriated by Cardia and white fellas for so long and you look at that in terms of the way that techno is translated across the world or how strength is translated across the world and there's such phenomenal black artists but there's even you know for every black artist there's like a hundred more white people <laughs> that are mm. you know taking that that style and that music and you know doing their thing with it and making more money from it and benefiting from it and yeah, I think that people are starting to realise that the roots of a lot of this music has come from black communities. And I also think that the innovation and cultural resistance that black communities brings means that we'll continue innovating and being, you know, one step ahead, really. Mm. So I'm really excited for what the next couple of years brings with all these amazing black DJs coming through and producers coming through who, you know, will be able to shape new forms of expression that are built on their experiences and their knowledge. Mm. I'm actually just really excited for the next couple of years. I was just saying to someone the other day at the moment, it's a really, I guess, not exciting time. Well, I'm going to say exciting time to um, have be to be black, really. Like there's so many opportunities and gigs and whatnot coming up that, um, you know, people before us and us are paving the way for young people, more young people to kind of feel proud and be able to um, express themselves in these spaces without feeling, you know, alone. And I guess social media has um, helped us with that too. Like I found you on socials. I found Paul on socials and like so many other mob and now we're all connecting. Yeah. It's so good. Like I think, myself, like all the black artists that are coming up through this space are just constantly thinking about how do we use, you know, the space that we're entering into to ensure that we're lifting and bringing more mob up with us. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested, particularly in the central desert context, like I'm cruising back to Mbantua and spending some time on art in the country over the next few years and um, kind of saying goodbye for Nam, from Nam for now. Um, wow, so you're going back to Mbantua? Yeah, yeah, really? in a month. Yeah, yeah. How I've been for? living like I've lived, been living a dual life for a long time. Like a few months here, a few months up north, and like moving back and forth. But yeah, really keen to settle in for a few years. But 
looking at ways that we can run programs and support other young mob to learn how to DJ and learn how to produce electronic music. And, you know, there's been deadly hip hop workshops in community for a really yeah. long time, which has been amazing. But like in the electronic space, there's so much opportunity to be working with mob there. Uh, so I've been having some yarns with a few people who are in the space and talking about what we can do to create some really long-term relationship building with some of the young people mm. coming up and support them to get those relationships in the industry as well. I think the the music industry is so built on relationships and unless you have that proximity to those relationships and that proximity to that privilege, it's really hard to get opportunities and, and to really understand like what's out there um, and how you can strengthen your practice, but also get your music out into the world. Oh, absolutely. So talking about the desert, did you grow up there? Like I, I can't believe I didn't even like know you. I grew up in um, Alice and Darwin and then down here, but then Annie Beck, when she referenced me to be like, you have to get connected with Rona. She's awesome. So like, did you grow up always in the territory? So I was actually born in Sydney. My, um, my dad was going to afters and after my brother was born, we cruised down to Sydney. So my brother was born in Alice Springs on that in the country. And, and I was in Sydney for the first few years of my life. And then we moved back to Mantua, Alice Springs after that. So yeah, I was there for pretty much my childhood, my teenage years, all those formative years where you start figuring out who you are and where you want to go. And yeah, it was an amazing context to grow up in. Our family's country is 300 kilometers North of Mantua, Kadich country. And being in the desert is where I feel really connected and really grounded. And that's what's calling me home. And I think COVID's really accelerated that. And I think for a lot of young mob and just mob more broadly, like that sense of being in community and being in, you know, the right relationship with community and country is something that we all want to prioritize in our lives. Like I think that's the most important work we can do in our lives is and being there and present and connected and going back to the desert feels like the right thing for me in this moment. I know I've been seeing heaps of photos of little Yipperinias like hopping around, like being real fat and cute. And it's just making me like, cause mom's just gone back to, um, in Barnford the other day. And so all my family's there and so many people have moved back as well. And it's just like, you go to Nam or other places in Australia, but then you just always get pulled back. There's just something about the desert that I don't know. It just, it's amazing. Like, especially like looking at these paintings, like they just remind me of the desert straight up, you know, like the colors and the feelings and emotions you kind of like when looking at them and just what gets me is the sky. Bunch of sky waking up every day and it just being blue compared to Nam when it's like, you just never know what you're going to get here. But in, you know, Alice, it's just always just beautiful weather. And then here it's like, oh, God, I just miss home. Totally. We often used to talk about blue sky fatigue when I was young, when I was a teenager, and how there'd be so many blue skies, you'd just get sick of them. And it'd be so exciting when there'd be clouds rolling in from the west or the east and storms brewing because it was something different. And then I remember when I first came down to Nam and there was so much cloud cover and there was so much rain. And for the first couple of years, I absolutely loved it just to have, yeah, that different space in country and feeling the different energy here. But after, you know, 
seven years of spending some time here, I'm like, nah, I need that blue sky again. Yeah, give me that blue sky, please. <laughs> it's so expansive and, you know, when you're on country looking up and you can see the horizon on all directions, there's something really special about that. And I find mm-hmm. that being in the built environment down here in Nam. Yeah, it's really hard to get that perspective of the whole horizon or even when you're like out on other countries across Victoria, there's often big trees and having that kind of horizon outlook just doesn't yeah, exist in the same way or there's something really special about, you know, being at the clay fans, for example, um, on other country and being able to see all these mountains and see the sky go on for, you know, endless kilometres. Mm, that was like when I, um, cause I just did a doco with SBS, which I was so privileged to be able to do. And, um, can you hear that? Okay, good. There's like some trading in the house. Anyway. Um, yeah, I was doing the doco and just like waking up every morning on country out bush camping and just like the sunrise and the sunset on that country. is just like, it's, there's just nothing else like it. And I remember, Arnie Tanner, because that's your, your cousin's, hey? Yeah. yeah, Arnie Tanner's saying to me, the best way to shoot the desert and make it look as pretty as the beach is to shoot in the morning and at the night. Mm. And I was just like, I've actually never thought about that, but it's so true. Just like, you know, your dad's movies and films always capture that, like that really beautiful um, way of capturing the desert. Yeah, it's timelessness, hey, the sunrise and the sunset and the beautiful light you get in those moments is so special. Mm. Yeah, you can't shoot in the middle of the day in the desert. It's too bright. <laughs> oh, no, we did, we did like some a lot of our shoots actually in the middle of the day and like just watching back at some of the um, footage sometimes, I'm like, can we even like see anyone? It's just so bright. Like the photos just <laughs> are nowhere near as good. But we could sit here and talk about the desert all day. That's just how beautiful it is. But in terms of talking about your dad and your family, do you feel like you drew a lot of inspiration for your work from them um, growing up with them, especially, you know, your grandma as well? Mm, I think like for everyone, our family ties are everything and the environments we grow up in really shape who we are and yeah, our purpose in life. And I grew up around cameras and films and from a really young age saw the power that filmmaking and storytelling has in really shining a mirror up to Australia and telling our stories our way for healing but also in really shifting the perspectives and the colonial narratives that non-Indigenous people hold across the country and everyone in my family is a filmmaker right like Nana was a co-founder of the Central Australian Aboriginal Media Association, which was really the forefront of shaping what Indigenous media has become in this country, but also was the training ground for so many of the amazing filmmakers that have come through over the last few decades. And I think as a young person, I saw the power of film, but I didn't want to be the same as everyone else in my family. I wanted to be a bit of an outlier. And so the idea of going into film wasn't something that I'd ever considered. And I was daring to be a bit different. And I think, you know, the depth of the conversations that I'd often have with dad yarning about the world that we live in, but also he's a very creative and artistic, but insightful and wise human. And 
I was really interested in, you know, looking at systems really and specifically economic systems and seeing the way that community were meant to sit within these systems but our voices and aspirations weren't heard within those systems. Like in the economic system, it's based on, you know, capitalism, extraction of country and community and the world is obsessed with jobs, <laughs> jobs that, you know, don't actually enable community to flourish or thrive or nourish ourselves. And so I studied economics at uni. That's what brought me down to NAM. And I really wanted to understand what the future of those systems would look like if they better centered the voices and solutions of mob. But I didn't get any of the answers that I wanted at university. And I left with more questions. Um, I learned how to calculate inflation. I learned about GDP and macro and microeconomics, but it was connecting with community down here and the social change network that I was slowly entering into that I began to realize that when we look at the systems that exist across this continent, whether it's health system, education system, economic system, those systems are driven by individuals and people. And what drives an individual or a person or a collective or a group is really the mindsets and the narratives that shape their behaviors and their perspectives and the way that they operate in those systems. And since the first moments of colonization, so-called Australia has been telling stories based on colonial mindsets, based on ideas of a primitive other, based on, you know, the impression, oppression and extraction of community And I really looked at that and I was like, well, what does it take to shift those mindsets? And what would it take for us to continue to strengthen the capacity of First Nations voices so we can tell our stories, our ways to heal ourselves, but also to shift those mindsets that are held by, you know, mainstream people in so-called Australia. And that's really where Common Ground came from and I was really young when we were starting it out and I'm still really young. So the way that I've understood the work has shifted over time. But I think that, you know, looking at the journey that we've been on as an organization, it was really wanting to create that space for mob to be able to share our stories and have our stories be amplified but also shift mindsets and and recognize that we've got so much knowledge and so much collective strength and so much incredible culture and, and history that for our own purposes, telling that and continuing to strengthen that storytelling is important, but also to shift systems towards better centering our aspirations, solutions and voices there has to be stronger connection um, and there has to be, you know, any connection between us and the rest Mm. of Australia. So Common Ground started in 2018 as a really humble collection of online written content from First Nations authors and and a social media page. But the organisation has just grown and shifted since then. And it wasn't until last year that I left a full-time job working with the foundation for young Australians and started building a a proper team around it. And it's been an incredible journey over the last year, strengthening the work that we do and creating new opportunities for mob to be able to share stories and strengthen cultural capital and and embed our knowledge in different systems, including the education system. It's really 
it's really nice hearing you talk and incorporate, um, I guess, our way and then white way. It's kind of like how are we going to um, educate people and, you know, showcase our voices, but also do it in a way that white men are going to understand because, like, they don't understand our way and our way of thinking, especially our way of thinking, but our culture and whatnot. So it's like to kind of find that common ground, we have to educate ourselves in both ways so they can't take that away from us again. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, it's really nice hearing you put that into words because I actually have always said it's the mindset of so many people that needs to change, but like, how are we going to do that? Like, how does, how does that happen? Because I live on a predominantly, predominantly I've lived in a super white area, like super white. My partner before me hadn't met an Aboriginal person, which is so wild to me. Cause I was like, what do you mean? Like, like, cause we, I, I am Aboriginal and I've grown up, you know, living on country and stuff like that. So it's like, how do these people not one know any Aboriginal people? I actually met my friend's dad who didn't know that like about the assimilation policy. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, do you think, like, what do you think happened? Like, it's so bizarre to me to think that people just don't know about these things. So it's really cool that there's a space like common ground where you can see first nation stories in a super positive light. That mm. is, is everything is a bit political, but it's not super political at the same time. It's really like, it's an inviting and warm and welcoming space online. Cause you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, um, activists who are super successful in their own right. And I give every um, prompt to them because I could never do what some of our activists are doing because I just couldn't handle it, you know, being super strong and out there, but having a space like common ground, which is what the, you know, what the um, brand is, is really awesome. Yeah. I think like when we think about, you know, dismantling these systems of oppression and dismantling yeah the ongoing mindsets of settler colonial colonialism and yeah the recolonizing that's happening and ongoing colonizing that's happening across the country to undo that and to shift into a new space takes so many different theories of change you know we need people to be staunch and strong and calling things out and holding people accountable. And I think there's more and more people that are stepping into that space, not just first nations people, but non-indigenous people calling things out and holding systems to account. But there's so many different theories of change that need to operate within these systems for us to really shift them and people putting energy at different nexus points to be able to shift them into new spaces. And, you know, for common ground, First and foremost, our work is about strengthening community first and creating opportunity for mob to be able to share their voice and share their perspective and their aspirations and solutions. And then that secondary impact that we want to shape is strengthening relationship and strengthening the relationship through presenting and amplifying and showcasing that knowledge and that voice so that more non-Indigenous people can be connected to it. But in the end, it's like if we're not telling stories that community, you know, if we're telling stories that aren't helping community in terms of strengthening and healing, then what's the point, you know? And I think 
operating in a space of education is great, but we have to be centering, you know, the experiences and the cultural integrity and intentionality of mob really being able to be at the centre of that, but also finding strength in being at the centre of that. Mm. I saw you guys did a project called Bedtime Stories and I read a little bit about that. Um, And I know you guys, did you put it into schools? Yeah. Which is so awesome. I was looking at a couple of videos and one I thought, oh my God, that looks like so much fun that you would have had filming that with all like the old ladies and the little kids and stuff and, you know, hearing those stories. But tell me a bit about that. Like, how did that come about? Yeah. So Bedtime Stories was one of our first projects and we kicked it off in 2019. And the idea with Bedtime Stories was about shaping spaces for up and coming black filmmakers to be able to tell stories from their community to tell dreaming stories and capture those stories to be held by community for generations to come. You know, these stories have been here since the beginning of time and we want them to continue for thousands of generations into the future, as well as really seeing this opportunity in the education system to be better supporting teachers with resources and knowledge that they can safely bring into the classroom So each year we work with the First Nations director and producer and they go on, you know, a journey connecting with their community and their elders to tell five public stories that are dreaming stories that can be shared outside of their community. And those five stories become five short films. We map them to school curriculum with a First Nations and non-Indigenous teacher focus group who look at, you know, the films and work alongside the director and producer to figure out, you know, what do we want people to learn from this? Like how can people really deeply embed the knowledge that's held within these stories and continue on those learning journeys, but also shape a really safe space in a school to be able to use these resources as a prompt for ongoing conversation and connection to the communities on the country that people are operating in. And yeah, the vision is each year we move to a different region. So we've done two years in the central desert and one year up on Nigana country in the Kimberley. And this year we're at down on Radjuri country and Jack Steele, a Radjuri director and producer is doing this year's series. And it has a huge response each year. We have over a hundred thousand students take part in it as well as families and some organizations. And we have this vision so that, you know, in 20 years time, we've got a map with stories from all across the country that people have been able to engage with, but can continue to engage with that teachers can continue to bring into the classroom and, and really having those place-based stories. So if you're down here on Wurundjeri country, there'll be some public stories that are on that map that people can be able to connect with and you know, community can continue to hold strong, but also non-Indigenous people can be able to learn from and be in relationship with. Wow, that is super powerful to be able to have that content, especially for young people, like little kids as well. I know my, um, one of my little uh, cousins here, they're starting to, at their preschool, they've now changed the preschool name to, um, Bunurong name. And, you know, they're using language within the classrooms and, Um, sometimes they get the Aboriginal elders of the area to come in and do like a welcoming. And it's really good to start having those, um, education pieces available for these young kids. So we can 
from a young age, teach them about our culture and, you know, kind of help shape their mindset. So it takes away from some of that <laughs> racism that's embedded to everyone's lives. Yeah. hundred percent. When people are young, they're so compassionate. It's the perfect mm. time to be able to connect them in with community and center first nations people and knowledge in those contexts, but teachers are so time for time poor. They're not getting education at uni that really equips them to be able to hold relationship with the community where they are. And there's so much being done in the education space and so much amazing work being done by people. And we really see that our contribution to that work is through resources in the classroom but we're also keen to start exploring what other capacity building opportunities could we explore with teachers so that they are building relationship on with the people of the land that they're on. And I think that's really important. It has to be place-based and we see bedtime stories is a tool to really continue on that journey, but it's not the only tool and there's so much work that needs to be done in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you, have you always had a passion for, you know, I guess it's in our nature as mob to um, bring the next generation up. That's just what we do. And that's what our elders do and whatnot. But, you know, I've seen you've done some work with YLab as well. So have you always had a passion for, you know, helping young mob? Yeah, I think, you know, it's so important to acknowledge the existing capacity that young people have. I just think young people are so incredible. I'm 25. I'm still a young person, but I have so much trust and belief in young people to be able to, you know, step into their own power and follow their aspirations and set bigger aspirations and be able to completely transform the systems that we're in over the next generation. And that's not at the exclusion of our elders and community members. They've done such amazing work advocating for community and holding community strong for the last few generations. But I really believe in backing young people to beat the current injustice that we're seeing, but also to transform the future. And at YLab, I was really privileged to work with a lot of young mob and look at ways that we could really use our lived experience as a platform to shape systems to better centre community. And I've been very fortunate to have so many amazing elders and people who've been older than me, who've just backed me and said, you know, you've got this capacity, use it. And we believe in you and we're going to back you. And I think the power of that, when you offer that kind of backing to another person is huge. Like it just takes a couple of people Mm -hmm. to say that to a young person for them to really explore futures that are really centering their aspirations. And I think, yeah, for me now as a 25 year old, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how do I make myself redundant in my role? Like how can I ensure that in the next few years there's a young person that stepped into the space that I've been operating in or when I'm offered an opportunity, how can I shift that offer of an opportunity to another four young people or people outside of, you know, my proximity to privilege or my proximity to whiteness. And I think that, it's so important that we're all operating like that. And I think a lot of people are constantly thinking about, yeah, how do we spread the the opportunities that we're offered and make sure that there's more and more voices that are coming up. Mm. 
So you have received a couple of awards over the last couple of years, haven't you? <laughs> Damn. Do you feel shame when, yeah, yeah. When people bring it up and you're like, oh. Yeah. Um, how did that even come about? Like I know you got an, like a named woman of the future by Women's Weekly. Yeah. Like yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, there's been a few awards. I find it real gammon because I think, you know, the work that I've been doing at Common Ground and YLab is really about how do we strengthen existing capacity? How do we build up mob? How do we ensure that there's more voices coming through? And I hate centering myself. Like I really, I really hate it. Like when someone's like, can you speak by yourself on something? I'm like, no way. I'll consider it. Like here's five other people you can talk to. And yeah, centering myself is something that makes me feel, I guess, reasonably uncomfortable. Um, Mm. But through the work that has unfolded at common ground, there's been moments where I've had to be centered. So awards like that, you know, it's amazing to be honored for the contributions that I've been able to shape, but it's not me, right? It's like, Mm. it's the team that I'm surrounded with. It's my ancestors that lead me. It's the broad shoulders that I've been able to climb from, from my family and community. So getting awards feels real gammon. And I think, you know, being acknowledged in white spaces, like doesn't really do much for me. It's, it's lovely, Mm. but it's like in the end, what matters more is that, you know, I feel you're uplifting community and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like my Nana saying you're doing a good job would mean more than anyone else in the world, you know? (laughs) Oh, true. Yeah. But your Nana's always your biggest fan. That's the best. (laughs) If you haven't having a bad day, you just call your Nana or call your aunties or something and they'll lift you up, you know? No, my Nana's always like, so what do you do again? I don't understand it. I'm like, (laughs) Nana, it's like kind of like, you know, what you did at Karma, it's about creating opportunities for mob to record knowledge and be able to strengthen and heal ourselves through sharing our stories. It's the same thing in just like a completely different medium and a different era. Mm. So with uni, do you feel like this is really, do you feel like uni, because when I, so I haven't been to uni, I've done like another form of education after school, but I don't really know what I want to study yet, but listening to you, one thing I really admire is how well you speak and how like informed you sound. How did you go about being like that? Like, I know that's just like such a short, sharp thing, but seriously, like the way you speak is really, it sounds really informative. So do you feel like that's because of uni or that's just like, you've always been like that? Uni didn't give me a lot, to be honest. Uni gave me networks and those networks have been really powerful in shaping my experience. But thank you for saying that. Um, I, I think it's a muscle. Like I think, you know, we come from families that have been telling stories since the first moments of time and there's something inherently powerful in that. But I also think that yeah, as a young person, I definitely felt shame and I felt really like anxious and awkward about like speaking or like centering myself in spaces where I had to like pitch or talk about the work. But over time, just from doing that, I think that I've got a lot of practice in, <laughs> to be and honest. You're really good at articulating yourself. Like you don't just use a little game and words. It's very like there's a lot of depth to your words. I know yeah. that might sound silly, but like, what? Because a lot of the none of my none of my really close friends 
go to uni, I don't think. So it's really interesting when I talk to people, might not even be uni, like you said, but people in these, I guess, like social justice spaces where you guys use words that have more depth rather than just like shallow words, if you kind of get what I mean. Mm. Like it's really nice to listen to. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been privileged to see amazing people speak in community and read books from amazing First Nations writers who use language that's incredibly powerful. But I also think that the way that I speak or communicate my work over time has become more informed with like my connection to myself and my ancestors and my stories. And there's something really powerful about when you shape space to, you know, sit in that, like when I give a, you know, a yarn, when I'm like jumping on a zoom, like last night I did a presentation to a group of philanthropists, which is a really weird space to be in. Like, um, and I just sat for like five minutes before and I was sitting there and I was just thinking about all the community that have led me there to this moment. You know, I often like close my eyes and just imagine, um, my auntie Rona, who I'm named after and and my Nana and my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side as well, just like in the room with me, guiding me. And there's something, yeah, really, really grounding about that. And I think it's maybe it lends itself to, to me yarning in ways that people are able to connect to, because I'm feeling that deep connection to the people that have come before me. Mm, that's really beautiful. So your project dreamy, now, I don't know too much about this project, but I saw you holding a space in Nam recently with your other colleague, Dakota, who I met the other night as well. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. Dreamy's been such a special project. It's been such a joy to work on for our team at Common Ground and the other contributors, an amazing mob that we've worked with. And I think joy is so key. I was saying to our team the other day, I was like, if we're not finding joy in this work for ourselves, healing ourselves, then what's the point? Like we need to slow down and focus on the process of things and operate with such integrity because that's when you bring joy into the center of the work. And dreamy was born from a really random request from Snapchat and Snapchat reached out, reached out to us and, they'd brought on another partner called Ogilvy and they came to us wanting to address a couple of the challenges and problems that they were facing as a massive tech company. The first of which was that they're not centering first nations voices and people on their platform. And they were really early on their journey in terms of shifting to a space and going on that journey of better centering mob. And also they were recognizing that they are part of the problem of young people spending 5.5 hours per day on average on their phones and young people not falling asleep, young people feeling really anxious and depressed and facing many, many mental health challenges. And so we started yarning to them about, you know, what is a solution to this? And Ogilvy had some ideas. We worked with them on those ideas and Dreamy was born, which is a series of sleep stories from First Nation storytellers that really center community voices, center our language, our connections to country and support people to drift off into dream. So sleep stories are, I guess, a new and evolving medium. They 
are very different to the way that other stories are written. You start, you know, at the peak of the story and it's supposed to be rolling down a hill in terms of energy and the voice and, and audio kind of space that the story goes through. And through that, you know, we released these stories in August, 2021 and had such an amazing response from mob across the country we worked with five amazing storytellers and an artist, Carmen Glyn Braun, who responded to each of the stories and created an accompanying artwork and then an animation. And so they sat on a microsite, but we also put them on podcasting apps because we wanted people to be able to save them when they're on country, when they don't have access to internet. And the response to these stories, just, it went off. It was like fully in the grapevine. You know how, I don't know, people talk about this Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander grapevine that just like exists across the country. Like yeah. I know people reaching out to me that I hadn't heard from in years being like, oh, five people like sent me this project in the last week, you know, five other blackfellas from totally different spaces and people yeah. who are young, who are old, people who are non-Indigenous from all different contexts were all getting around these stories as well. And we ended up being number three, most listened to podcast on Spotify for a month in Australia, which what? was pretty incredible. And like, without actually pushing that we were on Spotify, like we were sending people to the microsite and the Spotify link was kind of hard to find. So <laughs> the fact that it did so well on Spotify was pretty wild. And yeah, just yarning to the storytellers and the artists involved has been really special going through that process with them and, and working with them to figure out ways that we can continue to amplify the stories. We're planning on doing a schools package and, and taking these stories into classrooms in a really intentional way. There were some teachers that picked them up and took them into schools, but to really unpack some of the themes and the knowledge that's really gifted through these stories that come from different parts of the country. And even for me, this project was so healing. It was July last year when we were listening to the recordings that had been done by the storytellers and we were doing the composition for the sound and creating these soundscapes that represented where the stories came from. And we were in lockdown in Nam at that moment. And I think I was quite stressed potentially burning out a bit and having these stories, I'd, you know, be drifting off into dream every night, listening to their voice and the amazing places that they were able to connect me to. So it was really special. And since then we've had so many requests to get them into different spaces, including we did a event at M Pavilion last weekend and we've got an installation going in at Pajama in the desert in a, about a month, a bit over a month's time, which will be... When, what date is Pajama? I think it's the 9th to the 16th of April. 9th, okay. Did you come up for it? Oh, well, I actually just got a message from... Um, oh, no, Sam, I thought he said the dates, but he just gammoned didn't say that. Um, I think the date that I'm going to Alice is the 2nd or the 3rd of April to... I think I'm there till, like, May. April, May. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So I'm there because we've got to shoot another three weeks for our um, doco because it got too hot last time. Um, so I'll be there. That's really exciting. I'm very excited to see it. Are you? Is there like a light show that's going with the dreamy, um, you know, I guess, sound? So Carmen, Carmen, who's the artist, she responded 
to each of the stories with like a 2D artwork. They're pretty cool, but it builds off an orb practice that she's been doing for the last few years, which are these amazing orbs that represent the energy and, and the soul of each storyteller, which they're all different. And she's going to be painting up the 2D artworks into these 3D orbs and they'll be hanging in a celestial dome with bean bags and a space oh. to lie back and listen to each of the stories. I can't wait. It's going to be incredible. And we'll have an opportunity for the storytellers as well to share a bit more about their practice and what went into creating dreamy. And I think I've got a DJ set as well. So I'll be everywhere at the festival. <laughs> Are you going to do like a little bit of an ambient kind of set or is it going to just be like your tracks going on? Not ambient, but you know, like a relaxing one or are you going to do like a electronic? I don't know I'll have to suss the vibe. I think I'm playing at the festival hub one night, try and get a crew down. Uh, it's on a Sunday night, which is definitely a little bit quieter at the festival, but I'm sure we can bring some mob together to come in. Oh, Absolutely. I actually haven't been to Pajama. I'm really, really excited. Last year, oh, what was I doing last? I think I was feel no, I had to go home for some reason. Um, mm. So I missed it by like two days. And then the year before, which was meant to be really amazing, um, I missed it again. So I'm super keen that I will be there. So good. Really yeah, it'll be awesome. Rhoda does such an amazing job of bringing that festival together. And yeah, beyond Pajama, we're planning on doing some more sleep stories this year. So the Dreamy series will continue with different storytellers from across the country going through that process of shaping a, a sleep story. But also we're keen to explore working with some Aboriginal community controlled health organisations to create some stories that are completely in language that can be used as a tool for community and for young people and old people and falling asleep and staying grounded in, you know, chaotic lives we often lead. Do you speak language? I speak a little bit of Kadich, but this is an ongoing journey for me. I have been learning since I was a teenager and, you know, the way to get strong in language is to be immersed in it. And ever since my Nana was institutionalized, she was really, privileged in that her Nana, Nana Topsy, was able to go with her everywhere she went when she was taken to the bungalow and then later um, taken down south. So she always had her mum with her and her sister Rona with her, which was really special. But because of, you know, the way of operating between two worlds, her, her mother Topsy never passed on language because she wanted her to be able to operate in, you know, the world that was surrounding her and where she was living. So yeah, our family, like our immediate family lost language for that generation. And yeah, now it's up to us young ones to strengthen it. There's about 40, True, hey. 40 language speakers left who are fluent in Kadich. And I'm really privileged to be part of a project over the next three years, mapping a whole lot of our songlines on Kadich country with elders and with young people. And that's going to be, yeah, I think for me, a really healing and important part of my life uh, to be part of that project and contributing to it, but strengthening language as well. I think that, yeah, the power and healing that comes in being able to speak in language and being able to communicate in different ways, you know, like 
we can't truly know our songs and our dances until we've got strong language. And I think that's, you know, the important, most important journey that I'll be on in my lifetime is being strong in language and in dance and, and in song. Um, so I'm really excited about that. We just had the grant come through the end of last year. It came through, I think it was Christmas Eve. And I was like, Oh, this is amazing. You know, this project's been in the works for years and includes a whole lot of elders and anthros and linguists. And my role in the project will be working with young people and community to support them in building capabilities using cameras and using sound gear and actually having them record all of the knowledge and songs that are being shared. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really cool. It's so funny because, um, when I was back recently, the one thing I actually really did that, cause like you, you know, when we go and do these projects, it's, for partly ourselves as well as our community with our own healing, especially when you've been living off country for a little bit, you kind of like disconnect and um, lose sight of that connection. But when you go back, you realize that, and I don't think a lot of people that aren't Aboriginal aren't Aboriginal know this, but like our language is literally our communication in terms of our dreamings and our dance and our song. Like that there's so many Aboriginal words you can't translate because they are what they mean. And when you lose that language, you actually lose the story. Mm. So it's really awesome. And I'm so happy for you guys that you can be able to do that. And I know they're doing um, works with Pradam as well, which is mm. really awesome. And I don't really know much Pradam. I'm more literature. So, you know, cause my Nana best speaks that. Um, but like the same as you with, it's really sad because we could have really strong, language speakers in our, you know, immediate family, one generation or two generations back, but because of colonialization, um, there was that, you know, I guess gap in which they wanted us to succeed in this white man's world because of what they'd experienced. So uh, yeah, it's up to us to kind of take that on and learn as much as we can. And it's, it's really daunting to have that like responsibility in a sense, because, you know, you want to work for community and I guess, you know, what I do is for Aboriginal mob and you too, you do too, but it's hard because you're trying to live in like both of these worlds. Mm. So, you know, you've got the electronic scene, which is like predominantly white and you're trying to um, be black in those spaces, but then it's also being able to communicate with mob that aren't black, but then also connecting to what's back home. Like it's just yeah. such a, it's so tricky and you want to go places, but then you get drawn back by the desert and it's like, it's so hard living all these different worlds. Yeah. It's the complexity of our existence. And I guess this is why a lot of amazing black thinkers say, you know, we've got to work harder and work smarter to be able to, you know, meet our aspirations because there's so much complexity existing in our worlds. And even just like, being strong in ourselves and strong in our communities, I think is the core of what needs to happen for our young mob. Like that's so important as a first step. And then when you go out into those white spaces and you enter them, when you're strong in yourselves and strong in your community, like the power that comes with that is unparalleled, like the power in yourselves, but also that healing. Um, and I think it's really easy to get those things mixed up, you know, because we're, 
as young people are like attracted by the bright lights and the shininess of like universities and, you know, having to do more, have more, be more. And in the last few years, I've really recognized that that's just playing into the colonizer frame, you know, like we don't need to have more, do more, be more. And we just need to be strong in ourselves. And that's the most important thing. I guess that's like our way of thinking though, you know, like it's, I always ex- try to explain this to um, people that don't understand when I say Aboriginal people think different, like our way of thinking is like community based and giving back. And, you know, when I was um, acting mad, when I was doing this docker and I had a little bit of money, I was seeing all these little kids run around snotty noses on the streets. And I was like, I feel so like, I feel like I need to like help them or like give them something or, you know, because when you have, it's like in our nature to share, like, yeah with our family and stuff. So it's just like, just a different way of thinking to white mob. Whereas like, you know, you might get your cousin that you've met like three times hitting you up. Sis, can you like fly me to Melbourne or, you know, can you help me out with this? And it's just. Humbug yeah. is real, eh? Oh, don't even. It's like, oh, it was, it's so beautiful though. Cause when I was on the doco, um, I met so many, I think I'm related to every single person we meet along the way of the journey, which was just an amazing thing in itself. But, um, I still get calls from like pop Carl in like, um, Ndari being like, Hey, what are you doing? Granddaughter? I'm like, and then he's calling me up for a yarn and I've got this person calling me or this person humbugging me. So yeah, there's nothing more warming than that though. Just being like, Oh, brings you back. to right? Yeah. yeah. And it brings you, grounds you. It's reciprocity and you know, Growing up, I just saw it as humbug, but, you know, or sharing, but like that reciprocity of keeping balance is such an integral value and a a system of thinking that has nourished community for so long. But I also think that it's something that Cardia, you know, white people have got to learn from. Like imagine if everybody living on stolen land across this continent was acting with reciprocity towards First Nations communities and towards each other. Imagine if the whole globe was built on reciprocity, you know, we'd live in such a different world. And it's so clear that the extraction and capitalism that we're currently existing within isn't working for anyone. Like even the rich fellas living in Turak or, you know, in the Eastern suburbs of Sydney, they ain't happy. Like they're not living great lives. And I think that, you know, pivoting back to values and ways of thinking, being and knowing that have held community strong since time immemorial is something that would shift systems to be better for not just our communities, but for everyone as well. It's that word community though. Like I, I feel like a lot of white fellas don't actually know really what that means. You know, like I had someone tell me once, like, I was like, oh, you know, my mum needs me to look after my sisters or whatever. And they were like, oh, you, your sisters are your mum's responsibility. I was like, what? My mum's, like, they're everyone's responsibility. Like, that's just how we work. Like, you know, we've always said, like, it takes a village to raise a baby. You know, when you're in Alice with your family, all your cousins jump in this car and the other ones go in this car and you might stay with your auntie for three days. And then, you know, just things like that. And it's like that way of growing up and um, that really beautiful feeling of community, which I feel like maybe a lot of 
white fellas haven't grown up with, especially mm. if they grow up with like the mum, the dad, the sister and the brother and the, you know, like the five family members and then like the distant family or something. They don't really get that sense of what community actually means besides maybe like a local footy club or something. <laughs> so <laughs> funny. Which is just, like, which is I was yelling to my nana like a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about like the next generation, you know, she's ready for more and more great grandkids. And I was like, no, no, I'm not ready. You know, like I'm focusing on this work that we're doing at the moment and wanting to spend more time mapping these song lines and doing this project. And she's like, yeah, but you know, between the ages of 15 and 25, that's a good time to have a baby. And you're getting old now, you know, you need to have this baby now. And I was like, yeah, but I don't have time for a baby. And she's like, yeah, but you don't need to look after the baby. We'll always raise a baby together. You know? yeah. like, if you had a baby five years ago, there'd be five now. And, you know, they're pretty much independent. I'm like, Nana, a five-year-old is not independent. And she's like, yeah, but you got all your cousins there. And <laughs> actually, that's, that's how we think though. Like yeah. all my friends here were talking about, oh, you know, if I had a baby now, I'd like resent the baby. I don't know. Something like that was a bit dark, but, um, I was like, what if I had a baby now? Like, yeah, it would be shit, but I'll just leave it with mum or I'll just leave it with family and, you know, I'll go off and do this. And like, that's just our way of thinking. Like someone, you'll never not be like looked after in a sense, mm-hmm. unless you're like calling your poor thing, don't have anyone, but, um, you know, yeah, it's a beautiful way of thinking and a beautiful life. Um, I guess Aboriginal people live is, the community and it's really nice to see um us coming through the ranks and being shown in spaces now it's really beautiful to be able to look on instagram and see like mob even though it's just socials like it's so awesome to be able to connect and i feel like through covid that's really amplified that as well because people had to find a different way to connect hundred mm, percent yeah, there's been so much shift over the last few years in those online spaces. And it's amazing as well when you curate your newsfeed and you intentionally follow people that bring you strength and joy, what that means for the experience you can have online. Yeah, and then the negative way too, like there's there was some, I had to unfollow a bunch of people during COVID, you know, when you just like get on a really bad feed. Um, in terms of like the future, what are your future plans? Like what is next for you in like the next five years? What is next? So I'm going back to the desert and we're growing our team at Common Ground and strengthening that work. Uh, We've got some really exciting projects in the pipeline, but we'll continue, yeah, operating in ways with community that enable more voices to come through the platform and also doing a bit more work around capacity building and creating really early stage pathways for mob who don't have proximity to privilege or relationships to opportunities to start thinking about ways that they could use their voice to shift systems, whether that's podcast or film or TikTok or, you know, all of the different mediums of expression that can center our voices. And yeah, it's going to be an exciting couple of years for common ground, but I'm also releasing music, which is going to be a bit of a wild a wild journey kind of straddling all the different spaces that I'm existing within, but I've got another project that I've been working on for the last couple of years, which will be launching later this year called first nations futures. And that has been 
a long journey looking at economic justice and how we can create opportunities for wealth redistribution across this continent. When we look at, you know, how all wealth accumulated on stolen land is stolen wealth and it's built off the extraction of country and the extraction of community. And there's an obligation for all Australians who are living on that stolen land to be in reciprocity with First Nations communities and backing our organisations and initiatives to be able to self-determine our own futures. So we've been working on that for the last couple of years and it's been lots of yarns with elders and established leaders and young people across the continent, mostly on Zoom because we've been locked down. It hasn't been safe to do much travel. Lots of focus groups and, yeah, it's at a point where we'll be launching a mechanism later this year where any person across this continent will be able to find organisations and initiatives that they can actively back and co-invest in who are in critical needs of funding but also have programs and activities that are really culturally grounded and strengthening for community across the continent. Wow. That I, how do you have time? Like, <laughs> how do you even like, how do you learn how to breathe? You just put on your dreaming podcast and that's your, <laughs> yeah, dreamy. That's, yeah. listen to dreamy all the time. I have great people around me and I'm constantly bringing in people into, you know, the sphere of my work who are incredibly smart and yeah, we just create really trusting relationships and I have lots of amazing people around me that I just back to do a lot of the work, you know, like I'm in yeah. less detail at common ground these days because I've got the most amazing team of, of blackfellas who are, you know, incredible. do you feel like, do you feel like your whole, like kind of what you do is networking? I feel like that just comes into this job mm. a crazy amount. Mm. Yeah, relationships are everything and relationships have always been everything in community, but in, you know, a colonised world, they are everything. And the more I realise everything is built on relationships and I've been really privileged to have, you know, incredible mentors who've connected me in with people and so many, yeah, generous community members that are there to have these yarns and be part of the journey. Um, So... This is where I think that, you know, to ensure that there's more voices coming through, we have to ensure that we're sharing those relationships and we're like offering connections to other people because, you know, my proximity to NAM in Melbourne and going to a university where there were networks to funders really has been able to accelerate the journey of common ground. But you know, I want to break down that. Like you shouldn't have to be connected to people that have money in order to drive change for your community. You should just be Mm -hmm. able to drive the change and get the resources that you need from a platform like First Nations Futures. And that's really the vision is philanthropy in this continent is broken because it's built on privilege and it's built on people having that proximity to privilege and Mm -hmm. for mob to come through and make change for their community and build relationships. It's all about money, hey. It's so problematic. Yeah, it's all about money. And funding has been used as a measure of control for generations from, you know, the way that government chooses where funding should go to the way that philanthropy is built on the mindsets of what non-Indigenous people think impact looks like for First Nations community. Yeah. It's like, have you seen the, um, 
when I was doing all the research when I was in Vantua, I came across this graph, like this photo of CNT and 70% is under, I think it's under investigation, under something for fracking. Mm. And I was like, that is, so, it mo- I think it's like the, in the whole of Australia, Australia, um, the NT has like the most amount of fracking that's going on and it's all under investigation. And then it's like this massive, I actually didn't realize how corrupt things were until I went there and I was speaking to really informed Aboriginal people who were a part of the community and who were there and were going to these meetings and seeing all these like sly things happen with the NT government and stuff. And I actually had no idea that, you know, cause you hear a lot of things about conspiracies and stuff sometimes, but a lot of it's actually like, that like it vouches with mm-hmm. what's going on in the NT and like all just money, like yeah. and like keeping people off country and then choosing where the water can go as well and like giving it to certain cattle stations, but then not certain like places where people live, like wallets and stuff. It's just it's and then yes, so so much politics, but mm-hmm. it's um hopefully that people and our community, we can slowly make change through these spaces. And hopefully, um, you know, non-Aboriginal people can see the value in caring for country over money as well. Mm. Like it's just people think that they don't have the power to change, but the reason these things happen is because of people and the reason things don't happen is because of people. Like there's nothing else driving it. The only thing that's really more powerful than us is this earth that's like literally going to take us down soon. So you know, but I have faith. I I'm do. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like maybe I'm, I'm not losing optimism, but I'm bringing more realism into my frame oh. in the way that I work. Yeah. As a young person, I'm still optimistic. Mm. Um, and just seeing the strength of so many young blackfellas right now, you know, acknowledging that there's not always strength and there's a lot of hardship, but there is so much power that we already hold and we just need more people to back that. Oh, absolutely. Including, you know, our elders and non-Indigenous people, but just, yeah, back that existing capability. We've got so many skills. We use TikToks now. (laughs) (laughs) We start podcasts like you. I don't even have TikTok. I need to, like, do you have TikTok? Yeah. I feel yeah. like I'd spend way too much time on it. I actually downloaded it once and I just ended up watching prank videos. It was actually, I don't even know why they were on there, but yeah, shame job. But um, yeah, thank you so much, Rona, for coming on today. Like it's been really amazing to finally connect with you and talk with you outside of the um, music scene where I can hear you. Um, it's been really nice. So everyone that's listening to Mob Talk, um, I hope you've really enjoyed this episode and you've learned something from it. Thanks for having me. It's been no an absolute pleasure. Thanks everyone for joining us on Mob Talk this week. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and don't forget to chuck us a follow on Instagram. And we'll see you all for another yarn soon. Mm-hmm.